0: When I was in high school and a few years in college, I had, uh, I had some different personal issues that I went through, and uh, these personal issues uh, brought, a pain, brought along some pain, brought along some heartache that I didn't quite know how to deal with. And so instead of dealing with this pain, instead of dealing with this heartache, I decided I would numb the pain. And so I began engaging in activities that would numb my pain. And there's all kinds of activities we can engage in that will numb our pain. From drug use and abuse and alcohol use, to using one another, Even just having a busy life, filling up our schedule so we don't have to stop and confront the pain in our life, can be a way that we numb the pain. Sometimes we numb the pain even in church. And what I mean by that is sometimes people come to a church worship service to get an emotional high. And they come, and they sing, and they feel good, and then they leave back to face the pain well I didn't deal with my pain that way I turned towards activities that only led to more destruction the activity as I turned to left me, although they numbed the pain for a little bit, they left me with a feeling of shame and guilt and left even more pain which then what did I do? turn to another activity to numb the pain. I believe a m- many Americans do the same thing every day. Not just Americans, but humanity struggles with pain, with heartache, and oftentimes we don't know how to deal with it, and so we turn towards something to numb it. Maybe you don't struggle with pain, the way I did. Maybe you're living a pretty comfortable life, but you've kind of given up on like true joy. And instead of pursuing joy in your life, you're starting to, produ- to pursue pleasure. Quick bits of pleasure. And you search around for a little bit of titillation here and a little bit of titillation there, knowing that it won't truly satisfy, but if only it will satisfy for a small fragment of time. And you've given up on continual joy in your life. And so you treat church the same way. You don't think that you can live a full week of joy, but you come to church and you sing worship and you praise God... And it feels good. And then you return home to loneliness. We can use all kinds of different methods, all kinds of different activities to struggle with pain or even just to give us a little bit of titillation. But can we really experience true joy? The psalmist that we're going to engage with today thinks we can. And he's going to give us how we can. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 92. Once again, we don't know who the author of Psalm 92 is, but uh, that's okay. We know it's inspired anyways. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age they are never full of sap or they are ever full of sap and green to declare that the lord is upright he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him we can have continual joy in our life we can have continual joy even in the midst of sadness and i know that sounds kind of crazy that during the midst of deep heartfelt grief you can still have joy but i believe you can So we're going to study how we can, and I want to to give you a question to ask or talk about on your way home today, maybe over Sunday lunch. What do you turn to for pleasure, and how can you find continual joy in God? Let's go ahead and dive in. This is written as a chiasm. I'm curious, has anyone heard that term before, chiasm? All right, we got a good number of people. The people that don't know are like, well, I don't know. But I, I'm going to raise my hand anyway so I don't get embarrassed, right? That's what I would do. Just kidding. All right, let's go to the next slide. So, so chiasm, a chiastic structure is structured like this. It's, it's a mirror image. Uh, so it goes A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And so A is going to mirror the A. B is going to mirror the B. C is going to mirror the B. And it's all pointing to D. So the whole point of this psalm, the, the, everything is going to emphasize point D, all right? Another way you can find that that D is the middle is Yahweh. is Anytime you read in your uh, Bible, Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. That's the name of the Lord. The Second Temple Jew had such uh, awe and reverence for the name of God that they didn't use the full name. They never said the full name, and they never wrote out the full name. In fact, we've come to this place where we don't even exactly know what the name originally was because it just got lost, because there was so much reverence for it. We talked a little bit about this last week, but that is this, it shows that God is personal. Anytime you read LORD in all caps, it's this personal God that has this personal relationship with this person. And so this psalmist recognizes that God has a relationship with him. He can know God by name. And so there are seven Yahwehs in Psalms 92, And there are three before verse 8 and three after verse 8, the middle being verse 8. That's not the only way. We can also see that, and I've kind of written this down a little bit here, but we've got A and B have bicolons, so it's two-line stanzas. C is a tricolon, so three lines, and then D has no colon at all. And once again, this is all leading up to point D. Point D is the most important point we can find. All the other points are important as well. But all the other points come off of point D. All other points are going to be made because of point D. So what I'm going to do today is a little bit different. Instead of going linearly through, or chronologically, through uh, 1 through 15, we're going to go A's, B's, C's, and then D. That's how we're going to do it today. I think it's a little bit fun. I hope you have fun with me. So we'll start off. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So I've got point A as a declaration of God's goodness. We see here that that it is good to declare, right? That, that this person, the psalmist, wants to declare. To declare is to have uh, emphatically state something. To emphatically state something. Now, no, normally when we emphatically state something, when we state something with a sense of, I'm right, you're wrong, typically it's an opinion piece, right? So the first thing that comes to my head when I think about people who emphatically state something is in an outburger. Sorry, you In-N-Out Burger fans. But you love to state this opinion that In-N-Out Burger is so good. It's it's an emphatic statement most of the time. My brother loves In-N-Out Burger, and he has told me that I'm crazy. I'm not connected with reality, because I don't like In-N-Out Burger. That's an emphatic statement, isn't it? You might say that I emphatically dislike In-N-Out Burger. That's fine. It, but it's an opinion piece, right? So we shouldn't beat each other up too much about opinions. Different, different people have different tastes. Some people have bad taste buds and can't tell what. I'm just kidding. Actually, I'll, I'll confess something here. My taste buds are really bad. So I need a lots of hot sauce on something in order to taste it. So maybe, maybe my taste buds are bad, and that's why I don't like it. You can hold on to that. But, but the whole point is people emphatically state opinions all the time. This is not, these declarations are not opinions. These are facts. So he declares certain facts about God. The facts that he declares are his steadfast love, his faithfulness, that there is no unrighteousness in him, that he is upright, and that he is a rock. Those are facts that the psalmist is stating about God. He's declaring them, he's emphatically declaring these statements, these facts about God. So let's dig in. First, steadfast love. Steadfast love is an unfailing love. That God's love will never fail us. It is steadfast. It is always there. We can count on it. it. It will never go away. It will never diminish. It will never be destroyed. God will always love you no matter what you've done. No matter who you are. God's love is for you. But one of the problems with this statement, steadfast love, isn't the statement itself. It's it's how we've translated it. Because the English language does a horrible injustice to the term love. I'm sure some of you have seen the posters or heard the saying, love is love. And people think they're being pretty clever with that statement, love is love. It is one of the most annoying statements I've ever heard. And I'll tell you why. I love tacos, yeah, all right, I love beef, I love food in general, I also love my kids, I love my kids, and I love my wife. Now are any of those loves equal? They better not be, right? I don't wake up in the morning and go for a hug with my taco. I'd be weird. Everyone would think I was crazy. Not all loves are equal. Love is not love. So, so we've got different types of love. In the Greek, you've got several different types of love. But we, typically, we cover eros, which is a, a, which is a romantic type of love. It's where we get the term erotic from. And that's, that's one of the types of love that I have for my wife. So you can have several different types of love for one person, right? So there's eros. There's this romantic love. And then there's phileo, which is a brotherly love or, or a deep respect for someone. they also included in that can be a deep or an affection towards someone, having an emotional affection towards someone. I also have that towards my wife. And then you can also have agape. And agape, oftentimes, I think too often in the Christian circles, we we emphasize agape and we de-emphasize the other ones. But I think we should still emphasize the other ones. God created eros. God created phileo. We should emphasize those. Those are important. But they're not as important as agape. Agape is choosing what is right for the other person no matter what. Sometimes that's difficult to do, isn't it? Sometimes choosing what is right for the other person means letting them feel the consequences of their sin. It means stepping back from enabling them, stepping back from constantly covering up for their sin. And letting them feel the consequence. Because it is the consequence that will drive them to God. It is the consequence that will drive them to God that will, when they they connect with God, he will change their heart. And he will then will change their behavior. You covering up for someone's sin will never change their heart. It will only enable them to continue in sin. This is the type of love that he is describing here that God is choosing to do what is best for you no matter what. And he did that when he came to earth and he died on the cross for our sins. That was the ultimate show of this type of love. But it's unfailing. It's every day and it's for you. And he chooses to do what's best for you regardless of how it will impact him. So he has this steadfast love, and he is also faithful, meaning he is dependable. He is trustworthy. God will always be there to comfort you. Even after you've shaken your fist into Adam in rebellion and said, forget you, God. I want to be my own God, and I'm going to feel the consequences of my sin. And as you feel the consequences of your own sin, God is still there for you. God is also upright, and there is no unrighteousness in him meaning God is always morally right. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the creator of morality. He will always be morally right. That's one of the reasons why we need to study scripture. Because without God giving us clear definitions of what is morally right and what is morally wrong, there will always be a gray on what is right and what is wrong. We need a moral authority in order for us to know what right and wrong is. If we do away with God, then we can justify anything, can't we? In fact, there have been several people that that have claimed to be atheists that have come out later on in life that have said, I didn't want to believe in a God because if I believed in a God, that means there was some moral authority and I didn't want to have moral authority over me. I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live my life. If we get rid of God, morality will always be changing. But God is a moral authority who has established morality. His morality is unchanging, and he is always morally right, morally correct. He also refers to God or declares that God is a rock. And this is a symbol of certainty. A rock is a symbol of certainty. You know, we can look around these ponderosa pines, and they're so beautiful, they're so large, and they smell fantastic, don't they? They're about... They can live to be about 500 years old. Think about that for a second. Some of these trees around Flagstaff are around 500 years old. That means they were here before our nation was established. That's crazy. They were here before your great-great-great-grandfather. That's crazy to think about. And yet, a rock outlasts a tree. A rock outlasts a tree. God is a symbol, or the rock is a symbol of certainty. God is a symbol. God is eternally existing. So he says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to declare these things. The term good here means it is a delight. It is a pleasure. It is a delight in our heart. It It is a pleasure to us to give thanks to God. Giving thanks means to express appreciation. So to gather together and express appreciation, it's good for our hearts. It helps create delight. It helps create joy in our heart. But it is not the source of joy. Gathering together and singing a song with a bunch of other people that know that song and feel that song is a deep, meaningful song to you, that's called a concert. And it can can produce some good feelings. Have you ever been to a concert with... A thousand other people, 10,000 other people, and you all sang that song that you loved that helped shape you in your youth, and you just felt good. Worship is not a concert, there's something more about it. It is an acknowledgement of who God is and what He's done. So it's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Now notice what is the time frame that's happening here. He's declaring the steadfast love in the morning and the faithfulness at night. And what he's getting at across here, or what he's getting at, is that we are to declare God's love all day, every day. All day, every day. We are to declare God's love in our own heart or, and his steadfastness and, uh, and these, uh, that he is a rock that he is always morally upright. All day, every day. It's not that we just come to church one hour a week, we sing some hymns, and then we leave to be crusty old Christians again. All day, every day, we remind ourselves. All day, every day, we we express appreciation for God. For you, O Lord, in verse 4, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, and the works of your hands I sing for joy. The, at the beginning of this, 4, he's giving us now the reason. So it's good. It gives us the light to show appreciation for God, to, re, to declare his love, his faithfulness, that he's morally upright, that he is a certain thing. And now he gives us the reason to give thanks, he gives us the reason why it's a pleasure for you have made me glad by your work at the works of your hands i sing for joy this term glad means to have a it means to be in a state of continual joy notice that worship is although worship can bring delight worship is an outflow of the joy declaring god's righteousness is an outflow of the joy Now, this is a totally different way of thinking about worship than what we usually think when it comes to churches. Usually, when we think about gathering together as the body of Christ, we think about how we can worship God in such a way that will bring us joy, that will bring us pleasure. And when we do that, we manipulate worship from being about God to being about us. And it's all about my emotion, all about my feelings, How can I come to church and praise God so that I feel good about myself? And hopefully, hopefully that worship time will last me the rest of the week. But if not, then I can be a crusty old Christian come Thursday and just wait it out until Sunday again. But that's not what worship is for. Worship isn't for us just to feel delight or to feel some kind of pleasure. Worship is an outflow of the joy that we have in Christ. So then he goes on to sing why he has, or to say why he has joy. Why does he have joy? Why, why is he living in a continual state of joy? And how can we have that as well? He lives in a st- continual state of joy because he is reminding himself of the works of God. It is God's works that produce joy in this man's heart. Now, the term work typically has twofold meaning to it. The first one is creation. So he's singing about, he's reminding himself of the creation that God put in place. He's reminding himself of God's creative acts, right? So some of the way that we can do this is going to a place that that, uh, creates awe in us. So uh, outside of my window, I get a view of Mount Eldon, and you see the the, uh, rock structures on Mount Eldon. And every morning, I think about that, and I think about God. And I'm in awe of God's creative work. Going to the ocean produces the same thing. The Grand Canyon. This man reminds himself of God's creative works, and for that reason, he is in awe of God, and he has joy in his heart. But it's not just a reference to God's created work, creation. It is also a reference to redemption. To God's redemption. So for this psalmist, he would have thought back through the Exodus, he would have thought through Judges, he would have thought through all these books in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where God was busy redeeming Israel, and for that reason, he had joy in his heart, even if he was in exile. Now, if you'll remember, when we started Book 40 of the Psalms, we we talked about how this was being edited during exile, during the exile. So these Jews who were editing this were in Babylon. Babylon. And here are the the editors thinking and reflecting on, although they're in Babylon, they can still have joy in their heart because God is busy redeeming Israel. They still believe in his faithfulness, in his love, and that he is a redeeming God. How much more now on this side of the cross can we have joy because of Christ's redeeming act? We no longer have to be a slave to sin. Every single one of us has to come to a point in our lives where we have to recognize we are responsible for our sin. Every single one of us at some point in our life has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I'm going to do things my way. I don't want to listen to your word. I don't want to submit to your word. I'm going to do things my way. And for that reason, every single one of us deserves death. Every single one of us became slaves to sin. But God in his redemptive act didn't leave us there. He came to this earth, and he paid the price for us. And when the Bible speaks of salvation, it has three different tenses. It talks about the past tense, which is God saved you from your, your sin, the consequences of your sin. Meaning you, you won't have to pay the penalty anymore. But he doesn't just stop there. We were slaves to sin, and when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you no longer have to be a slave to sin. He has freed you from sin. And then in the future is the redemption of the entire world, and we know that we can live in eternity with God. You are no longer a slave to sin. God's redemptive acts are working in your heart, in your life, right now. How can you not have joy when you think about that? How can you not have joy when you can think about who you were before you came to know Christ, dead in your trespasses and sins, being called unholy, to being alive together with Christ, and now he calls you holy, he calls you righteous, he calls you just. You are no longer defined by your sins. How can you not have joy when you think about that? So on the other side of B, he talks through personal aspect of God's redemptive acts. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. So the the horn like a wild ox is kind of weird to us, but... For, for that agrarian culture, they were thinking through, like, what is a powerful animal? And so they would be thinking about this ox. I think about the Texas longhorns and, you know, those huge horns. And you think about what kind of power those horns hold behind them and how I would hate to be stabbed by one of those horns with one of those bulls going full speed. That's kind of the thought process that's being put behind here. And then fresh oil was used to dress wounds. And so the whole idea of verse 10 is that here was a man who was wounded, he was weak, he was hurting, he was in pain. And yet, because he reminded himself of God's works, of God's redemptive acts, now he is renewed. He has a renewed strength that doesn't come from himself, but comes from God. Now he has a renewed strength. Energy level that doesn't come from himself but comes from God. So here was a man who was down and he was beaten down and now he is refreshed and he is renewed. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. And what he's talking about here is that the wicked go from prosperous to fleeing. The wicked go from prosperous to fleeing. And how often do we see that? Someone who looks... Like, man, they're really thriving. Even though they're wicked, they're really thriving. And then all of a sudden, like that, things have changed for them. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. And so here he's saying that when we are established in God, who is the rock, We're like a big tree, like a big, strong tree. God has made us to be secure and safe like a huge tree of Lebanon. Now, this is going to be compared to grass, which withers and dies. But when we are established in the rock, we are made secure like a tree. And not only are we made secure like a huge 500-year-old tree, but we'll still bear fruit in our old age. Now, this was important for this culture to be thought of as useful and bearing fruit in old age. When we are established in God, we will still bear fruit in our old age. And I think about my grandparents. My grandparents, I have the two sets on my father's side, my grandma. She confessed that her, she had put her faith and trust in Christ, but she never was obedient to Christ. She never wanted to live out the principles of his word. And she lived a pretty selfish life. And that selfishness turned into bitterness she turned towards other things to numb the pain, and she died a bitter, lonely lady. My grandpa on that side, same exact story, died a bitter, lonely man. My mother's parents with their faith and trust in Christ at an early age. At times they struggled with legalism, but then they learned what grace truly was. And as they matured in the grace that God had lavished upon them, they found more and more joy in their life. And when it was time for each one of them to die, they were ready to go be with their maker. And they welcomed death because they were ready for God. And they died with friends and family by their side with joy. I tell of two sets. That's what happens. That's what happens when we put our faith and trust in God and we find our joy in his redemptive acts as we finish well. They bear, still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Meaning they're healthy, they're flourishing, they're thriving. That's what happens when we put our faith and trust in Christ and continually remind ourselves of his redemptive acts. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. This term deep means thoughtful and profound. So God's thoughts are are profound. They're difficult to understand. Then he contrasts that with man. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. Now this term stupid, I, I think is actually an insult to animals. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the term actually means brutish, and what brutish means is that it's more like an animal instinct. So what he's saying is the the man, the brutish man, the man that acts on animal instinct, cannot know the deep thoughts of God. And why can't he think about? Why can't he know the deep thoughts of God? Well, because he's not paying attention to the deep thoughts of God. Almost every night, I love. Once again, I'm using Eldon because it's just right behind my house. I love to look at the sunset there. Who else has just been enjoying the sunsets lately? Just beautiful pink and purple mixed with some blue, and it's just it. it, it man, it gives you such a sense of awe. It almost feels like it's an overwhelming sense of awe, right? It's just. So beautiful, and you can sit and stare at it. And there are times when I I haven't noticed it yet, and one of my kids will come inside and say, Dad, you got to come look at the sunset. Or Jen will say, Aaron, come look at the sunset, and it's so beautiful. But I've never once noticed an animal staring at the sunset. They're too busy thinking about where they're going to get their next food or hiding from the next predator, right? They're operating on instinct. They're not taking in the awesomeness of God. And so that's why I say that the the term stupid here is actually, I think, an insult to animals. It should be brutish because animals aren't stupid. But they're not taking time out to be in awe of God. And that's what's happening with the the brutish man. They're not taking time out to to be in awe of God's creation. And then he goes on, the fool cannot understand this. And what he means by the fool cannot understand this is that the fool can, can see but not understand. So there are some foolish people that would go out and watch the same exact sunset as me, but never correlate it with God's creative works. And so the, fool per, the foolish person can see, but doesn't understand. And then what is it that the brutish and the fool don't understand? That though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish. So they watch as the wicked and the evildoers look like they're flourishing. They sprout like grass. Now see the contrast, we've got the rock, which is certain, the tree, which has security, and the piece of grass. One of the nice things about Flagstaff is almost through the entire month of June, we don't mow, right? But we're mowing now, aren't we? What happens to our grass? As you're mowing, look at the tree. You wouldn't dare put your mower up against that tree. That tree that has taken root, and developed, and is secure in the rock. But you mow that grass down. But the brute and the wicked, they look at the evildoer, they look at the wicked, and they see the green grass. They see the grass growing. But they don't understand that they are doomed to destruction forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So what they don't understand is they look around and they see the evil flourishing and they don't understand that there will be a time where there will be destruction for the evil. That's part of God's moral correctness is that because he is a just God, those who are evil will meet their doom. One thing that we all have to wrestle with is that we have all been in that category. And the only way to avoid destruction is to put your faith and trust in the works of Christ. That's it. Otherwise, you're still stuck in the category of wicked and evil. But the wicked and evil, man, though they sprout like grass, they are destined for destruction. Now, we have kind of a a flipped uh, season here where our dry season's June, and then we've got July. But growing up in the front range, they'd get a lot of rain in May and June, and it was so green and so beautiful, and then July would hit, and that would be the dry season. The trees would last through the dry season, but the grass would get brown and die. Even here, we've got June, and we see dead brown grass all June long, and then we get the monsoons, and we see this beautiful green grass that we're going to mow. But we know it's not long until that grass Dies again. In fact, I think some people just skip mowing altogether because they know the grass is going to die. But the trees, the trees are still lush and green. Even in the midst of the drought, we've had such a horrible drought until recently, but even in the midst of the drought, the trees were stressed, but they were still living. But you, O Lord, so here we come to the apex of of the psalm, this is it. This is what it's all pointing to, and we start off with but, the the contrasting conjunction. He's contrasting it with the grass. But you, O oh Lord, are on high forever. It's one short line. But you, O oh Lord, are on high forever. He is our rock, our security. We can trust in him. He's going to outlast everything, even the trees. He is on high forever. So I've got our, our old falling apart rope. I wouldn't go rock climbing with this rope, because you can see right here, you would definitely die. Uh, but it is, it is a rope that we've had for a while. Some people recognize this rope. Some people are like, why on earth do you have this old rope out. And I I keep this rope because it's a really cool rope. Uh, Unlike any other rope you've ever seen before in your life, it goes, it it is a never-ending rope. Both ends. Now, you can't see the end. Even if I had them out, uh, you know, even if I pulled out more, you'd never see the end because it's never-ending. So I had to weave it around and through a door and it just goes on down Townsend, Winona. I don't know if anybody saw that driving in. It just goes downtowns in Winona, and all the way down. And then this side goes this way. And it just never ends. It is an eternally existing rope. And it is our timeline. God has lasted for eternity in the past. And he will last for eternity in the future. And here is my life. Born in 1980. I've got... Uh, decade per inch here, or an inch per decade, I should say, if I live to be 80, that's it. It's my life. If I live to be 80, if I live to be 80, this red line could be right here. I don't know. You don't know where your red line is. This is where I turn 10, 16. Do you see, teenagers, do you see how small that is? I know it feels like an eternity. It's a really short time. Right about here is where I turned 20. I know it feels like forever. It's going to go by so fast. Here's where Jen and I got married. Here's where Jude was born. Here's where we are now. Now, when I'm really close, that seems like a long time. But what's interesting is this rope that lasts forever. If we wanted to get some perspective, we'd pull back and you know if we wanted to see, even just pull back enough to where our nation was created you start to see how small my life really is. If we pulled back enough to see all of humanity, my life would start to seem like just a small little dash. And if we pull back to where we couldn't see the end over there, and we couldn't see the end over there, you couldn't even see my life on this rope. God is everlasting, and we need to live in light of eternity. And when we live in light of eternity, I think we feel both small and big at the same time. We feel small because we realize just how big God is. It's so easy for us to get caught up in this idea that I really am something. You know, you get a few likes on social media, maybe a few followers, and you start to think you're big stuff. Maybe if you're really, really impressive, you can become president of the United States one day. I don't know. Or maybe the world's richest man. And yet... None of that is impressive to God. And it's all just so small. But I also feel big when I think about this because I, even though I am so small, I'm connected to the Creator. I'm connected to the creator. And not only am I connected to the creator, but the creator has a steadfast love for me. You're small. In the grand scheme of things, your life doesn't even show up on the timeline. Just like mine. But the creator of the timeline loves you. You are connected to the creator of the timeline. And because of that, you have meaning, you have purpose. God has a special assignment for you. Will you live it out? But you, O oh Lord, are on high forever. And because you are high, on high forever, we know that the wicked are like grass. They only last for a season. We can be secure like a tree because we're plugged into the rock. Dear Lord, we thank you for how you have loved us. We thank you for your steadfast, unfailing love for us that even when we shake our fist at you in rebellion, you still love us. And we thank you for your, for your works, your works of both creation and redemption. That you didn't leave us to our sin, but you redeemed us. And we thank you that, although we could be like grass, you have made us like trees. In your name we pray.